Well, good morning. I'm Stephen. I'm the pastor. And uh, we are actually going to finish the, this book of Philippians today. Um, we've spent over 20 weeks going through this letter verse by verse. And I actually uh, looked at it. it this is, it's only 2,000 words, which is kind of crazy, um, four chapters long. But it talks about things that change lives, right? We've been walking through this all summer long. And what hit me as I wanted to wrap up this whole series and wanted to sort of put a little bit of a bow on this book, because uh, really what I want to do is I want to hand it to you. I want to hand this book to you so that you will continue to read this book with understanding. Uh, you'll continue to read this book with excitement and joy. Um, and I realized that the key to doing that, the key to being able to take this book and let it be a part of your lives going forward uh, is to recognize that there is both a human and a divine element to this book. I mean, it's really true about the entire Bible, but especially about this book. Uh, God inspired the Apostle Paul to write this book. He inspired it. The Holy Spirit carried him along so that he would speak, not even, I mean, they were his own words and they were the words of God. And he wrote truths about Jesus and what Jesus did and who Jesus is and what he does for people who follow him. Uh, God inspired Paul to write things about relationships, about joy and anxiety, about conflict. And this letter speaks to all sorts of things in life. And the divine element of the Bible is clearly seen in how it can shape our minds, how it puts forward to us the reality of who God is and what that means for us and how to follow Jesus. And uh, some of the most famous, if you just look at, there are certain individual verses that so seem to come from God. Um, so just a couple examples, Philippians 1.6, this is just one verse. It says, he who began a good work in you, that's God, will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. So this is a verse that's pulled out of the book, and it's written on bumper stickers. It's written on you know, needlepoint, on artwork that goes on walls and posters because this is such an encouragement that if God has begun to work in you, he's not ever going to stop until his work is done and you are made perfect in Jesus. And so that's super encouraging. And then Philippians 4.13 is a, is a super famous verse. It just says, I can do all things through Christ, through him who strengthens me. And so... There are verses in this book that show the divine, that show that God is real, that show that God is at work in the world. And, and as we understand these verses, as we walk in these verses, God comes real to us. And we don't just see these words on a page, but we experience them in our lives. And um, one of the reasons why we preach through whole books of the Bible at our church is so that we can teach you how to read the Bible on your own. Because it's hard to read the Bible. It's hard. It's difficult. Um, all kinds of distractions. But even if you aren't distracted, you, sometimes you sit down, you read, and you're like, what in the world is this talking about? And so we go through books of the Bible to help you understand it so that you can read it on your own. We do verse-by-verse -verse preaching so that you can see how each verse is dealt with to understand it. Verse-by-verse um, -verse also keeps us from skipping over the hard parts of the Bible, we take time to go through a whole book, it lets you follow the themes and the flow of thought uh, that an author has from beginning to end. And so that's why we do that. 
And there's another way to read the Bible. There's another way to, to, to preach the Bible, and that is to zoom out and to look at the big picture. Um, it's, you know, I, I love Google Maps just because you can zoom in as far as you want to go, even to the point where you can see the, the, the shops or the houses, right? And then you can zoom out and you can see the whole earth, and so you can see context. And, and as we learn and grow in our understanding of the Bible, we're going to find that we do that. We zoom into verses and then we zoom out to the big picture. And uh, it's really powerful when you zoom out and see the big picture. And so that's what I want to do today. As we finish the summer series on Philippians, I want to look at the letter as a whole and why it was written. Because this will show us more of the human element of the scriptures. It'll show us the historical context, the human circumstances that were why it was written. Some of these things we've talked about in our series, but I want to sort of zoom out and just see the biggest picture so that, again, when you pick up the book of Philippians, when you go to read this on your own at some point, again, in your life, you'll be like, okay, wait, I understand. Yeah, there were really two things going on that caused this letter to be written. And so before we look at those two things, the human element of why this letter was written, I need to tell you about this guy in Hamul, okay? There's this guy in Hamul. I met him at an Arco gas station, and he told me, I got into a conversation with him, he told me that he had the greatest social media app of all time. This app was better than Instagram, better than Twitter, better than Facebook, Snapchat, TikTok, better than all of them. It was going to replace all of these other apps. Like when you could see this, when you experienced this app, like nothing else will do. In fact, if you use this, as a catch, if you use this app, you can't use any of the other apps because it'll crash your phone. And supposedly, there are these people in Mexico, where this guy was from, <clears throat> who were using it, and they thought that this app was just incredible. So I'm thinking, this guy's crazy, right? <laughs> Talk to a lot of people that are on the border, and some that are way over the border, not the Mexico border, but that are crazy, <laughs> right? The border of sanity. <clears throat> but this guy didn't seem crazy. He just seemed committed. He was really zealous about this. Um, and so... You know, I forgot about it. A couple days later, I was like, oh, yeah, yeah, that thing. So I go online to check the internet for information about this app and this guy, and I learned that this guy had been arrested. And he was in jail because his app was illegal and was breaking all kinds of laws. So, this guy in Hamul, this is one way to try to approximate what it was like for the Apostle Paul when he wrote the letter to the Philippians, okay? Paul had been sharing the good news of Jesus, and Jesus is not an app, I get it, but he was sharing the good news of Jesus. He was telling people that other gods, that other religions were not real, but that Jesus, who was supposed to be the Messiah of this religion from an insignificant country in Israel, Right, this, this country called Israel, that the, the Jewish Messiah was Lord of the world, and that all other gods, all other religions were false, and everyone needed to turn the direction of their lives to worship Jesus and to follow Jesus. And so to say that Jesus was Lord of the world, I think was even more crazy than saying that someone in Hamul, who's now in jail, has the social media app that's going to defeat all others. 
Like it was even crazier for Paul at that time. Do I need to let you know that there wasn't really a guy in Hamul? That was a preacher story. I made it up to illustrate just to make sure everybody understands, okay? Preacher stories, I don't tell very many of those. Usually I like to have real stories, but that one was just choice. I was like, oh yeah, it's a social media thing. So, but, so Paul, like, I, I want, but I want you to understand this was the challenge that was before Paul. Paul had had success sharing the message about Jesus with other Jews, but would this message be believed by people who weren't Jewish? Would this message be believed in other countries? Could it be, like, would it be possible? Like, the Roman Empire was the dominant force in the world at that time. And could it be, could the gospel of Jesus be accepted in the Roman Empire? Well, in the Roman colony of Philippi, the gospel seemed to work. Philippi was the first place that Paul went to in the Roman world. Acts chapter 16, you can read about it. It tells us what happened when Paul got to Philippi, and there were people who heard the message of Jesus, and they believed. But then Paul was imprisoned. Paul was accused of treason, of breaking all kinds of Roman laws, uh, because in the Roman Empire, Caesar was Lord, not Jesus. And there were even people in the church who said, Oh, Paul's in prison because he's being judged by God. So instead, you should follow me and where I want to tell, you know, what I want to tell you is true. And so Paul was sitting in this prison and he was worried that his imprisonment would invalidate his credibility about Jesus. Would the Roman Philippians keep believing in Jesus? Would they trust God? And then on another note, like at a more core and existential, like when life falls apart, you don't just worry about the people that you've shared with, but the question also begins to filter into your mind, wait, is God even in this? Am I just fooling myself? And then, then in the midst of all of this, and a lot of this we've talked about in bits and pieces, but I want to give you the biggest picture here. Then Epaphroditus shows up. Epaphroditus comes from Philippi. And he has this financial gift from the church in Philippi, and it's all for Paul. He has this gift for Paul from Philippi, and in a moment, all of Paul's fears and anxieties are relieved. Because the church still loves Paul, and more importantly to Paul, the church still loves Jesus. And so Paul is getting this update from Epaphroditus He's hearing how things are going, um, and in the update, one of the things that he learned was that there's these two female leaders in the church who were in a major dispute, and as Paul's hearing this update, as Paul is sort of overwhelmed by everything that's being said, Paul's like, I got to write this letter. I got to write back to them. I need to let them know that I got there. You know, I, I, need to, I need to write back, and so this is the letter that we have to the church in Philippi. So Paul, in prison, worried and concerned, all of his concerns are relieved, and he hears that there's this problem with these two women in the church that are in conflict, and so Paul writes this letter. And so Paul really has two human purposes in writing this letter, okay? There's two reasons why Paul wrote this letter, and if you know these two reasons, then any time you open up the book of Philippians, you can be like, oh yeah, Paul's dealing with either this issue or that issue, there's these two things, sometimes it's both. And so Paul's first human purpose is just to thank the church 
and to rejoice in their gifts' meaning. Okay? Paul wants to thank the church and rejoice in their gifts' meaning. So the first thing Paul says, he just says, thank you. Thank you. And more than thanks for their gift was his thankfulness for what their gift meant. And so this purpose is how Paul begins this letter and how Paul ends the letter. So it's a bookend, right? The beginning and the end. It's the first thing that they hear and it's the last thing that they hear. Um, And so Paul calls it a partnership. So the verses that are in your bulletin, the first three verses, actually it's four, um, but chapter one, verses three through six, we'll put up here on the screens too. Paul says this, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you. He's like saying, every time I think about you, I'm thankful. That's what he's saying here. Always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. So Paul begins this letter by just thanking them. He just He's so thankful. He's so excited because their faith is real, because God is real. And so, and then at the end, Paul writes in chapter 4, verses 14 through 18, he said, Yet it was kind of you to share my trouble. And you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. Verse 17, not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. And so to Paul, this gift that they sent was more than just a monetary gift. This gift was a sacrifice to God. It was an act of worship. And to Paul, this, this, it was proof that the Philippians' faith was real. It was proof that God was real and that God was working in the lives of the Philippians. It was proof that the gospel was true. It was proof that the power of Jesus' love and grace would reach beyond the Jews and would powerfully reach all the nations on the earth. I mean, nothing could have meant more to Paul than this. His whole life had been given to this ministry of the gospel. His entire life was spent. He lived, he sweated, he bled to proclaim the gospel to all the nations. And this gift was a validation of everything that he was working for. That's why he has joy. That's why his joy is invincible. And so even in the midst of prison, facing his own possible death, Paul was rejoicing because this gift meant that the mission of Jesus would succeed in reaching the world with the love of God. The whole letter is filled with Paul's joy because the gospel is not undone by suffering or circumstances. The gospel is not undone by suffering or circumstances. And this made Paul's joy invincible. Man. So he had another purpose in writing this letter. Like that was just one of the things 
that he wanted to get across, but there was something else. There was another purpose that motivated him to write this letter. Um, and his second purpose, his second human purpose in writing this letter was to confront the conflict so that the two will reconcile. Okay, it was to confront the conflict so that the two will reconcile. So also in your bulletin is Philippians chapter 4, verse 2. So I took the two purposes. I tried to find like what are the best verses that sort of illustrate those two purposes. Philippians 4.2 is the second purpose. He says, I entreat Euodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. So it's kind of striking that Paul calls out Euodia and Syntyche by name. Uh, you could imagine... Uh, like a pin dropping <laughs> after he read, after, you know, because these letters were sent and then they were read out loud to the church, you know, and this, this, would be like, this would be like me saying, Kim Elliott, Michelle Corbett, get, you need to agree in the Lord. Like you need to reconcile, you know, to say that, to call out two people in our church, like this division, this conflict has to end with both of you united to Jesus and united to each other. And so, like, the, I, to Paul, the unity of the church was one of the most important things that existed about the church. Uh, Jesus said the same thing, right? Uh, that the world will know that, that God sent me if they are united. Jesus says, the world will know that you're my disciples if you love one another. And so love and unity is at the heart of what the church is supposed to be. And so there's, and so this, this conflict he addresses. He addresses the stakes are so high. And, um, and so, and I, and I want to spend the rest of our time focused on how Paul, in this big picture letter, I want to look at the big picture of the letter and how this confrontation of these two ladies happens. Okay? And so we're really just going to look at two characteristics of how this confrontation happens, and they're going to help you see the big picture of the Bible. So now I know that not, like some of you have, have been reading the Bible for a long time. Some of you are brand new to the Bible. And so some of you are not Christian and you're still sort of exploring Christianity. All of us have ideas of what the Bible's like, okay? Now, a lot of people have the idea that the Bible is this condemning book that gets into our kitchen, points out all of our flaws and makes us feel guilty and ashamed, I think a lot of people have that feeling because that's how they've been treated by Christians in their lives. Um, so I want to look at how this confrontation actually happens in the bigger picture of the letter so that, again, I want to hand this book to you so that for the rest of your life, it will be a source for you of invincible joy. Okay, so the first thing that I want you to see about this confrontation is that it's in chapter 4. Okay, this is chapter 4, verse 2. And so this confrontation, this is all about how the Bible confronts. It's in chapter 4. What does that mean? That means that when the Bible speaks to us, it gives us the gospel first and then the law. Okay, it gives us the gospel first and then the law. All of Paul's writings are like this. Every letter that Paul has written 
you have the beginning of the letter and then you have the second, the end of the letter, right? And the beginning of the letter, typically in just about all of Paul's writings, are Paul preaching the gospel. They're Paul sharing truths. They're Paul speaking about the wonders of the blessings of what it means to know Jesus. And then Paul says, therefore. Therefore, these are the implications of what it means to be blessed by Jesus. There is something desperately wrong in this church in Philippi. But Paul doesn't deal with what's wrong until chapter 4. Friends, celebration comes before and after confrontation. Okay, we've seen Paul celebrate the Philippians at the beginning of the letter. We've seen him celebrate the Philippians at the end of the letter. (laughs) The beginning of chapter 4 is where Paul's confrontation is. And this is so important, the power of this. If you were just to take this idea and then go back and read the letter from the beginning to the end, you'll feel it. You'll feel it that the celebration is first. And the celebration, it reminds us of who we are, that we are God's children, that we are saints, not because of what we've done, but because of what Jesus has done, that God is at work in our lives. We are forgiven, we are loved by God, and his love is grounded in the story of Jesus and the work that Jesus has done, not in us. This is huge. And it's not just forgiveness. Um, I don't know if I can say this, hopefully some of you won't freak out, but for some Christians, forgiveness is important, but it stops being this unbelievable motivator for some people. For some people, it's not so much that they're forgiven by God that causes their hearts to warm and swell, but it's the idea that, you know what, that God has a mission for them, that God has a purpose for their lives, that God has something for them to do to bring the gospel of Jesus into every area of their life and to share it with people in all the aspects of their life. Some people are more heart-warmed by not forgiveness, but by mission. Um, Some people are more excited about the truths of community and fellowship that, you know, the greatest thing for me about being a Christian, some people would say, isn't necessarily that I'm forgiven, that's amazing and wonderful, but I really love the relationships that I have with people in the church. Like, and it's the community of the church that is most impactful for me. And what's amazing is that Paul talks about all of these things. Like, it's not that he pits one against the other. He talked about all these things. He says in chapters 1, 2, and 3, you've experienced the gospel. You've experienced God at work in your life. You've experienced community. You've experienced love. You've experienced fellowship and kindness. And so since you have experienced all of these things in chapters 1 and 2 and 3, because you have all of these blessings and all of these realities that are yours because you're in Jesus, and you're part of his community. Therefore, Euodia and Syntyche agree in the Lord. Because of all that God has done in your life, because of what God is currently doing in your life, what God is doing through you, Paul goes on for three whole chapters before he confronts the issue. And this is why we need to add to our appreciation of verses in the Bible a step back and a a grasp of books of the Bible as a whole. 
Like this is why we need to zoom out and see the bigger picture. The gospel is simple enough for children to understand, right? You could write it on a napkin that we were designed to live in relationship with God, that our sin separates us from God, and Jesus is the bridge that brings us back into a relationship with God. That's the gospel. You can draw it on a napkin. And yet, there are deeper things that we deal with in our lives, aren't there? Like There are things that are going on in your life that are problematic. There are things that you struggle with. There's darkness. There are dark places. Um, there are things in us that seem to be much more deeply ensconced in our souls that don't seem to just want to come out. No matter what we do, no matter how hard we try, no matter how long we've been at, we've been at it, there are addictions, there are habits. I mean, sometimes it's our coping mechanism to traumatic experiences of our past. Sometimes it's us being radically broken by the family that we grew up in or people that we knew a long, long time ago. Um, sometimes it's us coping with an awful situation. Sometimes we're trying to medicate pain and misery we're running away from, we're avoiding things. Um, one author says it's a miracle that we're not more messed up given just how much suffering we have to endure. And, and not just suffering, but given the malevolence behind much of the suffering. Some of us suffer because circumstances in life just don't work out. And then there are others of us who are being like deeply wounded and have been deeply wounded by people who are filled with hate and brokenness. And they're dealing with their own demons and sometimes they're doing it on purpose. And sometimes they just don't know how else to act. And so when we're dealing with these deeper issues and, and it's, it's hard to know exactly what was going on between Euodia and Syntyche, it's hard to know what the conflict was based on. I have some ideas as I've looked at the letter as a whole. Um, but the point is that I think that Paul, even in celebrating, even in preaching the gospel, Paul wasn't randomly selecting truths of how wonderful it is to know Jesus in chapters 1, 2, and 3 of this letter. I think that Paul was specifically highlighting the aspects of the work and the person of Jesus that would lead him to this confrontation. I think that Paul was trying to set the stage so that Euodia and Syntyche and all of their followers, who were probably also at odds with each other, so that everyone could be ready to hear that they needed to agree in the Lord. And so in chapter 2, right, there's a place where Paul talks about Jesus. And he could say all kinds of things about Jesus, but what he says is Jesus had all authority, but he didn't use his authority for his own benefit. Instead, he put the needs of others ahead of himself. He humbled himself and he came as a servant. And he obeyed God even to the point of death, even death on a cross. And because of that, 
God has highly exalted him and God has established Jesus as the ruler of heaven and earth. I think that Paul was writing that about Jesus because that's exactly what Euodia and Syntyche and their followers needed to hear so that they could agree in the Lord. And so the point that I'm trying to make here is that when we're dealing with the deeper issues, sometimes it's not just a verse that someone can share with you and say, well, gosh, this verse says this, therefore your problem should go away. And if it doesn't, what's wrong with you? That's not how the Bible deals with things. That's not how Paul deals with this confrontation. It's in chapter four, which means that Paul spent chapter one, chapter two, and chapter three getting ready to confront the conflict. And what this means for us, when we step back and see that chapter four comes after chapters one, two, and three, like that helps us to see that we need truths that get deep enough into the depth of our brokenness. There are things in our lives where just hearing a verse is enough. We get it, we're like, oh, dang, I need to think about it this way. Oh, Jesus, you are this for me. God, you're this, you're doing this, this is, or this is what I need to do. I'm good, and sort of like you move out of that. But then there are times when we need to sit down with each other and say, this is gonna take time. As long as it took you to bind yourself to this behavior, maybe as much time as it takes to unwind and to untangle the knot that's put you here. And so, as Paul's writing this, he's going to get to the conflict, but he spends three chapters with rich theology, with a deep study of the person and the work of Jesus. And this, friends, this is how the gospel deals with issues. This is how the gospel confronts things. And this is why we need to read the Bible in a bigger picture. Um, I'm reminded of the series we did on emotionally healthy spirituality and just all the factors that go into why we react the way that we react and how much we need all of the gospel to speak to all of our issues. And it takes time. It takes time. And, and, and the good news is that, that, well, let me get to the next thing. I'll tell you, because <laughs> the good news is wrapped up in the second thing that this, that this is trying to tell us. So the way that the, that the gospel confronts, it's the gospel first and then the law. The second thing that we see here is that, the, is that God doesn't discount the good that you do. Okay, God doesn't discount the good you do. Because remember, this is chapter four. And before this and after this, Paul is rejoicing over these people. Right? We, we saw that already. We saw the first point, right, is that, that Paul is just celebrating. He's rejoicing. He's affirming. He is encouraging them with what they've done. The problem that was going on in the church, this really serious problem, didn't cancel out Paul's love and joy over their gift. 
And this is how the Bible addresses us. It affirms reality, both the good and the bad. It's not just the bad. Can you hear that? Um, this is so important. Um, the problems in your lives today, your failings, your struggles, they don't invalidate the work that God is doing. The issues that you have, the ways that you're broken, the things that are wrong in you, don't invalidate the good that God is working in you. It's both and. The Bible doesn't ignore either. And it's important for us to know the Bible doesn't just harp on the bad. I just, I love this. I mean, this, and this, again, it comes when you see that this verse, chapter four, verse two, is in chapter four. Because this problem doesn't invalidate the fact that they glorified God with their gift. Even while there are problems in the church that need to be addressed, Paul writes chapters 1, 2, and 3. Some of you have major brokenness and major struggles. When you fall into sin, you feel like a loser. When it's habitual sin, you feel like you're never, ever going to be done with it. Right? This letter deals with your brokenness in chapter 4. It deals with your brokenness in chapter 4, but in chapters 1, 2, and 3, it gives you God's favor and God's peace. Paul says in the beginning, I am confident that he who began a good work in you will complete it. God will not let you go. God says this to a church that in some ways was in jeopardy. This conflict could have destroyed the message of Jesus in that city. And so even in your failures, God won't give up on you. He will make you someone who can love him and love others. And so God is honored even when you live a life. <laughs> and for some of us, and for seasons of life, sometimes the testimony that we have is that we, live, we love a God who forgives. <laughs> and that's it. <laughs> Sometimes we can talk about the power of God that changes us, the power of God that transforms us, and how God has given us the ability to overcome addiction and fear and anxiety and all these wonderful things, right? And we become this sort of poster child for believe in Jesus and your problems will go away. Sometimes. <laughs> but then there's other times when your testimony or your life is, I believe in a God who never stops forgiving. And I'm really thankful that he's that way. God is honored when that's your testimony. God spends three chapters making sure that when he confronts you, you won't forget that he's confronting you as one of his children, not as an outsider. Man. When you step back and see the context of this letter, it feels different, doesn't it? Like Paul wrote this to thank them, to celebrate them, and then to confront the conflict. The way he does it is feels so different from so often our own experience. And so we have to study the parts of the Bible to get the whole, but we have to study the big picture, the whole too. 
we got to step back and see the bigger flow of what's happening. We want to take time to, to step back. And for me, it's outlining. Like, for me, the way I do this is by looking at sections and then trying to write a sentence about each section and then going, oh, yeah, these are the, here's the outline. And when I do that, it helps me to see some of these bigger picture gospel themes. Um, and at the core of this, I mean, it's, it, it is the gospel. Um, it's, Paul reminds them and he reminds us of what Jesus did as the great enactor of unity and service, right? The one who had all the authority of God humbled himself. He didn't use his power or his energy to amass, you know, aggrandizement for himself, but he became a servant. He washed his disciples' feet and even died in their place. He died for the sins of the world. I mean, I like to think about it this way. He died not correcting all of our sins, he died paying for all of our sins so that we would receive his correction through the lens of his love. So friends, this is Philippians. This is God's gift to you, both human and divine, so that in our human circumstances, we would meet the divine Jesus and grow in him. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for the gift of this letter. Thank you that it shows us both your divine mind and it also shows us the humanity of Paul and the reality of the church in Philippi. Thank you, God, for celebrating us. Thank you for seeing our hearts and for seeing our, the good intentions that fuel us. God, I pray that this would lead each one of us to be more committed to following you because you are so wonderful, because you care for us so wonderfully. Help us, God, to walk in the reality that this letter pictures for us, to walk with you, and to experience this gospel as we walk with you. And then, Father, help us also to share this part of who you are with each other. That when we need, we need to hear your celebration sometimes through others. And so help us to celebrate each other, to encourage each other, to affirm each other. And then when we confront God, help us to not shy away from that, but help us to do it the way that you do it, the way that your word does it. Continue to build in our church a unity. Let us be a harbor of rest and recovery and equipping so that we can reach this city with your love and your grace. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.